Your culture is how your company makes decisions when you're not there. This is Arik. Um, good to be back for another episode of Startup Rebels. It's been a few weeks since I've talked to you guys, so I'm really happy to be back here and digging into Ben Horowitz's great book about culture, What You Do Is Who You Are. So in this discussion, I'm going to really explore what a great culture is and how you go about building one um, in the context of both the, the book, What You Do Is Who You Are, and my own experiences um, at work and in life in general. So I think most of you will be familiar with Ben Horowitz. Um, this podcast is called Startup Rebels, after all. But for those of you that aren't, Ben Horowitz is a hugely influential thinker in Silicon Valley, former early employee at Netscape in the 90s, um, co-founder of a company called LoudCloud, which he took public um, after. And that's a great story about his journey with LoudCloud and what it's like to actually start a company in the book, Hard Thing About Hard Things which is a fantastic book as well, and, and maybe we'll cover someday on the pod. But I'd say the thing that Horowitz is known for most these days is founding Andreessen Horowitz, co-founding Andreessen Horowitz, the venture capital firm. It's been one of the most successful venture capital firms in the last um, 20 years or so. And again, hugely influential thinker here in the Valley and in startup culture in general. So when you talk about culture and you think about leaders and CEOs, most leaders and CEOs either don't think about culture or they think of culture in a very shallow way. And this isn't an indictment of those people. You know, They have many things to worry about. They're worrying about building a business. They're worried about execution. And culture is not a substitute for execution or for a great business plan. Um, but I think it's also very easy for leaders to think, especially in the Silicon Valley and the tech startup bubble, that culture is about what you put on the wall, right? The values you put on the wall or the benefits you're offering your employees. And that's really not. So the question is, what is culture? Um, well, let me quote from the book here. Um, your culture is how your company makes decisions when you're not there. It's the set of assumptions your employees use to resolve the problems they face every day. It's how they behave when no one is looking. If you don't methodically set your culture, then two-thirds of it will end up being accidental and the rest will be a mistake. So it's how your company makes decisions when you're not there. As the title of the book is, what you do is who you are. Your culture is the set of norms and behaviors that are reinforced over time in your organization. It's what people, it's what guides people to act in a certain way when there's no one watching, right? And if you think about the tactical decisions that an employee at any company makes on a daily basis, the leader is really not involved in the vast majority of decisions getting made. For me as a software engineer, if I'm working on a big feature, I will easily make tens or hundreds of decisions about 
what to build and how to build it in the process of doing this. No matter how well specified your acceptance criteria are by the product manager, no matter how tight of a timeline there is, the leaders simply can't make every decision. So again, what is a culture? Well, it's what you do. It's what your employees do when you're not looking. It's the norms, it's the rituals, it's the virtues that define the people in your organization. Why should you care about culture? So a great culture is a competitive advantage, first of all. It's aligned with your mission. It helps you attract and retain the right talent. And it allows you to execute at the highest level. So as I said before, again, a great culture is not a substitute for a great strategy. A great culture is not a substitute for product market fit. All of those things are necessary to build a great business. But the culture is what can take your business to the next level. And I think Ben Horowitz really hammers that home in in a section of this book. And he talks about that at length. You know, there's a saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Well, if you have a shit strategy, a great culture isn't going to do much for you. And it is possible to succeed with a shit culture and a great strategy, but it's very difficult. And I think the other thing that's interesting about culture is, you know, culture influences people. It, it changes people, right? When you spend a lot of time around a group of people who act a certain way, you take on characteristics of that environment. So it's another reason why, as a leader, you should be focused on creating a great culture because you're going to leave a mark on all the people who walk through that door and participate in your organization. And if the culture is toxic or negative, you're going to, instead of doing what you hope to do and making a dent in the universe, you know, pushing human humanity along, at least you know, providing for a bunch of people and their families and um, creating value for your shareholders – you may be doing those things, but you're also going to be having a potential negative impact on the world that, that you need to think about. So, like I said, the first takeaway is really that your culture is not what you're putting on the wall. It's not about free beer. It's not about yoga classes or a dog-friendly workplace. It's not even about saying things like, you know, be empathetic, right? It It's about what you do. So then the question goes, okay, most CEOs, most business leaders, they're no stranger to the idea of culture, right? They may not be thinking about it on a daily basis, but there's tons of literature about culture. There's tons of, you know, McKinsey, Bain, like startup books, whatever you might have it about culture. But the question is, you know, what do you actually do to create a culture? How do you define a culture? Um, and in order to learn how to define a culture and, and really dig into that, in this book, Ben Horowitz goes through a few different cultures that, that you can observe that were great cultures in their own right uh, throughout history. And he looks at the leaders of these cultures and how they program the cultures and design them in order to create 
success on the battlefield, success in their personal lives, success for their organizations. So the first of these was Toussaint L'Overture. So Toussaint L'Overture was the leader of the Haitian Revolution, and he grew up as a slave in Haiti and was lucky enough to get the opportunity to learn to read as a teenager, thanks to the attorney of the estate that enslaved him, who kind of took a liking to him. So Toussaint L'Overture had a great and rich life, and I won't go into that in detail here. There's tons of books on that, and there's also, you know, this book. If you want to really dig into the history and all of these stories, I recommend you picking up the book because I'm not going to do that here. What I'm going to do is really explore um, focused takeaways from that. So, but, but in order to frame that, I think it's important to know that the Haitian Revolution was the first large slave revolt in the world, and Toussaint L'Overture and his army managed to defeat the French, the Spanish, and the British armies on the island of Haiti by building this amazing army out of former slaves. And they really had to, uh, L'Overture in particular, really had to reprogram the entire culture, right? If you think about the culture of a slave, you're going from someone who needs to look out for themselves, who needs to avoid drawing attention to themselves. Deference is very important because your life is at stake if you don't. And Haiti was a particularly brutal slave colony. So to go from that to a culture of free men who are trying to take on some of the strongest superpowers in the world at that time, and not only take them on and win in battle, but establish a culture that can last beyond that is very difficult. So you know, Horowitz goes through a few takeaways from L'Overture's life and from what he's building, but I think there's a few that I want to focus on. And I'd say the number one thing that I would focus on from Toussaint L'Overture is create shocking rules to set your culture. So what do I mean by that? If you create a rule that is so surprising to people that it forces everyone in your who comes and joins your organization to ask why why do we have this rule the answer to why shapes your culture forever so in Toussaint Louverture's case one of the shocking rules he created was married officers cannot have concubines so it In our world today, this doesn't sound like a big deal, okay, sure, but if you think about the historical context at the time this was happening, it was absolute norm for soldiers to rape and pillage and plunder. So for Toussaint L'Overture to recruit people into his army and then tell them that they cannot have concubines was shocking. Everyone was like, why? What could possibly be the reason for this? To quote from the book, the reason is because in this army, nothing is more important than your word. If we can't trust you to keep your word to your wife, we definitely can't trust you to keep your word to us. 
So I think that is a really good example. And I want to go through a few more examples that Ben Horowitz talks about in the book of creating shocking rules, because I think this is one of the most concrete things that I haven't really seen a lot of leaders do, but I think is a great tool to really concretely force your culture in a certain direction. So a great example that I really liked was he talked about Diane Green, who was a co-founder of VMware. So VMware was a company, is a company that builds virtualization software. I won't get into the details of what virtualization is, but it's essentially what allows the whole cloud revolution to happen in the long term is virtualization, which is this idea that you have a computer with, you know, a server with a CPU and memory and a hard drive and all of that. And on top of that, instead of installing one operating system, you install what's called a hypervisor. And the hypervisor is essentially a thin virtualization layer that allows you to simulate multiple operating systems, multiple independent computers within one physical computer. So you can make it seem to your guest operating system as if you are running on one machine, but really there are 10 or 100 VMs running on one server, one physical server. Anyway, so because this business was about virtualization, VMware's strategy was really focused around building partnerships with existing companies. And this was critical to their business. So Diane Green was trying to figure out how can we make sure that we succeed in these partnerships. We're a small upstart company. In the decade before, a lot of companies had partnered with Microsoft and they had been smashed to pieces because of Microsoft's dominance with Windows, especially when we're talking about partnering with hardware vendors and trying to build the default software layer that goes on top of you know, commodity hardware, right? So Diane Green created the rule that all partnerships should be 4951 and VMware should get the 49. So right off the bat, that seems pretty counterintuitive, right? Why would we want to take the short end of the deal in every partnership we have? The reason she created this rule was to tell, to implicitly tell everyone that it's okay to take good care of our partners. If our partners need a little extra, if they need a, li- a small discount on a deal, if they need us to deliver another feature, we will do so. We are, they truly are partners and we're working together and we're not trying to, you know, pull the wool over their eyes or eke out that little extra bit of profit. And this was hugely influential in VMware success, according to Horowitz. So another example was from Amazon. Um, When Amazon was in its early days, they, when new employees would join and ask for a desk, they would get a desk made out of a cheap door from Home Depot. So someone from Amazon would go down to Home Depot, they would buy a door and some legs essentially, and they would drill them together and they'd say, here's your desk. Obviously that's 
shocking, right? Anyone would be shocked to go to an office building and uh, see, you know, DIY desks made by slapping together some stuff from Home Depot. So why did Bezos make this rule? Well, frugality is one of Amazon's big cultural pillars, and he really wanted to drive home the point in a visceral way that our goal is not to have nice offices and freebies and this and that. Our goal is to create value for our customers. Our goal is to keep, deliver product, books initially, and later everything to our customers at the lowest cost possible with the highest levels of customer satisfaction. So buying a fancy desk is not within the realm of acceptable behaviors in our company. So a couple more things about creating shocking rules and what you can do to make your shocking rules effective. So one is your rule has to be memorable. It can't be something boring or obvious or uninteresting like, I don't know, I can't think of a good example right now. Always say please and thank you. You know, that's not going to program the culture. Um, the other thing is it has to raise the question why. It has to be bizarre and shocking enough that people who hear it have to ask, you know, are you serious? Why, why are we doing this, right? So in Toussaint Louverture's context, that can be married officers can't have concubines. In a modern office, it's less extreme, but maybe it's we make desks ourselves out of doors, right? Maybe it's we always let our partners get the better deal in partnership contracts. Um, the other couple of things that Horowitz talks about is that the cultural impact must be straightforward. So the answer to the why has to really clearly explain the cultural concept. And secondly, people must encounter the rule pretty much daily. If your super memorable rule only applies once every eight months, it's not really a useful rule. It has to, there has to be this element of constant contact and reinforcement and reiteration for a cultural moray to take hold. So another culture that Horowitz explores is Bushido. So Bushido is the Japanese, essentially, samurai way of the warrior. And if you go to the early days of this podcast, back when we were reading Rebellion, you'll see uh, a few books, deep discussions of Bushido in the Book of Seven Rings, and um, there's another book that the name is slipping me right now that we read from medieval Japan about Bushido and about the warrior way. But Bushido is a set of virtues and not values. And I think this is another critical piece for leaders to understand as you're building teams and as you're building organizations. There's a lot of focus in the corporate world on values, right? If you go to almost any tech company's hiring website, there'll be some blurb about their values. If you go to many offices, they'll put them on the walls. HR will really hammer them home. It's a very common thing to talk about the values of your company. But there's a distinction between a virtue and a value. To quote from Horowitz, 
A value is merely a belief, but a virtue is a belief that you actively pursue or embody. Or to put it in another way, a virtue is oriented around action, whereas a value is oriented around belief. So an example of a value could be empathy. And empathy is a great value to have, right? It's good to understand where people are coming from. I think depending on the business you're in, it can be very useful for your company to be empathetic with one another, with customers, and and so on. But it's not really action-oriented. If an employee is in a difficult situation and they're thinking about what should I do here, how should I respond to this situation, the fact that empathy is on the wall isn't really going to inform their action, right? But if you have something like take care of your coworkers, you know, maybe that's a virtue that you can use to actually inform decisions. Um, so in the Bushido, one example they talk about is honor, right? And honor does sound initially like a value, So what did the Japanese do, the samurai, to turn this value into a virtue? Well, they they went to great lengths, really, to give color and context behind the virtues. They put tons of stories and mythology behind these virtues to really illustrate and give people a visceral feel for what it means to have that virtue so in the case of honor you know there's a classic anecdote from medieval japan where there's a samurai walking down the street and a helpful citizen tries to tell the samurai that there's a flea on his back to help him out and the samurai responds by cutting the citizen in half well why is that it's because If you say that there's a flea on the samurai, you're comparing him to a beast, an ox or a cow. And that is an insult to his honor, his clan's honor, and his family's honor. So he could never stand for that. Now, I don't think we should be chopping people in half because they said there's a bug on you. I think we should be rewarding that behavior. But I think it's a good illustration of... um, how you can bring col- like color and context to your values to turn them into virtues. Um, so another example of a virtue is from A16Z's uh, culture deck or, or culture page. So Ben Horowitz talks about this in the book, and I'll just read this, this virtue in full. We respect the intense struggle of the entrepreneurial process, and we know that without the entrepreneurs, we have no business. When dealing with entrepreneurs, we always show up on time, and we always get back to them timely and with substantive feedback, even if it's bad news, like a rejection. We have an optimistic view of the future and believe that entrepreneurs, whether they succeed or fail, are working to help us achieve a better future. As a result, we never publicly criticize any entrepreneur or startup. Doing so is a fireable offense. This does not mean that we leave CEOs in place forever. Our obligation is to the company, not the founder. If the founder is no longer capable of running the company, the founder will not remain as CEO. 
So that's pretty verbose, right? But which is in stark contrast to most values that you would see defined by any company. But it very clearly gives employees a a set of guidelines of how to behave and what actions to take on a daily basis, right? An interesting exercise would maybe be to go look up some of your favorite companies and see what they put on their website for their values and try to do this assessment. Are these values or are these virtues? Apply this to your own company, um, but also go out and look at them. I won't do that now because I don't want to pick on people unnecessarily, but it's, uh, it's an interesting exercise to go through for sure. So again, the big takeaway from Bushido is you want to build virtues and not values when you're defining your culture. It's really important to think about how these things translate to action. And that's what defines them. That's what makes them virtues and and not just values. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about a couple of other stories and and histories that he goes through in the book, but I'm going to go through it pretty quick because, again, my goal in this episode is not to give you all of the color and rich context behind these individual stories, but to distill and explore some of these takeaways. So another person, very fascinating person that Horowitz talks about is Shaka Senghor. So Shaka Senghor was a young man in in Detroit who went to prison at 19 um, because he was caught up in, in some sort of street violence. I believe it was like a murder or manslaughter charge, something along those lines. And he was instantly exposed to the extreme violence of prison when he got there. Uh, when you go to prison... You spend a couple of weeks in a sort of quarantine to ensure that you're not bringing any diseases into a very vulnerable population. And then you get to go into general pop, gen pop or, or the general population. On Senghor's first day out of quarantine, almost as him and his group of new people at the prison were walking into the cafeteria, they saw someone get stabbed in the neck. And that was his quick and rude awakening to the new environment that he was in as a young man of 19. So eventually, you know, Senghor at the time known as James White joined a prison squad, they call it in Detroit, but, you know, you could think of it essentially as a prison gang called the Melanics. And this was a group of individuals that taught principles derived from Malcolm X and the Black Panthers, like self-determination and using education for black uplift. Of course, like any other prison organization, their bread and butter is really in providing shared security to each other. So it's strength in numbers, it's violent acts in order to protect yourself and your brothers in arms from the environment that is a prison. So over time, Senghor rose to become a leader within the within the Melanics, and he really 
transformed the culture because he had this this stark realization that it was a culture of wanton violence and he wanted to change it to become focused on education and reform and to really live up to the high-minded ideals that were in the Melanics founding documentation but that he felt were not being lived up to on a daily basis so Horowitz goes in detail about how Senghor actually turned this thing around but I think there's a few important things to note here. So one is that the best way to change the culture is constant contact. So let's take that as an example. Say you're a leader, you're CEO, and you realize that the culture in your sales organization has gone off the rails. People are lying to close deals. People are fudging numbers. Things are going wrong. You're getting results, but they're lacking integrity, and you see the company going down a path that's going to be very difficult to come back from. So you realize you want to bring a culture of honesty, integrity, and you need to make a change there. But how are you going to do it, right? Are you going to sit down and write an email saying, you guys are liars and you need to stop? Well, of course not. That's that's cartoonish, right? Um, are you going to get up in all hands and say, listen, sales guys, you need to stop lying. It's unacceptable. It doesn't align with our values or our virtues. Well, you could do that and you maybe need to do that, but that's also not going to actually change the culture. So what you do is you set up some sort of regular meeting cadence. You go and you get your hands dirty. You join sales calls. You get into the meetings where the numbers are getting fudged and you constantly are asking for the truth. You're holding people accountable to that integrity and that honesty that you want to build, but you have to do it every week, preferably every day, every other day, as often as you can. But by being shoulder to shoulder with your employees, you know, they'll see you and they will take that away from you, um, what you're trying to teach them. You can't do it from far off, from on high in your ivory tower as a CEO of a large organization. You have to be on the ground. You have to be shoulder to shoulder with people and you have to be showing them, modeling the behaviors that you're looking for constantly in order to really change your culture. So a few other things to think about when you're evaluating your culture and when you're building your culture. So in terms of evaluation, what you think about your culture doesn't actually matter. It really doesn't. You might think you have a great culture and that might be influenced by, for example, your e-staff if you're a CEO. You have a you know top-of-the-line CFO who's coming from, you know, Harvard Business School, you have a great head of sales, engineering, product, HR, you know, support and services. It's a crack team. Everyone's fantastic. They're buttoned in. They're honest. They are open and it's great. But that could be hiding tons of chaos that's festering beneath you in the organization. I really like the way Horowitz put this. I'm going to quote from the book again. The relevant question is not your perspective on culture. It's what must employees do to survive and succeed in your organization. 
What behaviors get them included in or excluded from the power base? What gets them ahead? Again, what you do is who you are, not what you say. So in designing a culture, so in understanding your culture, sorry, it's what you think doesn't really matter, right? What matters is how people are actually perceiving and experiencing the culture. The best way to do this is to talk to new employees. So when new people join your organization, soon after they join, in the first couple of weeks, go track them down and ask them about your culture. Ask them what works and doesn't work. Ask them what surprises them. Ask them what differs from their previous employers. Doing this is what's really going to allow you to understand your culture, especially as your organization grows and you get further and further removed from the day-to-day activities of most employees. Um, And I think the other great takeaway here is that you need to start from first principles. You can't just blindly adopt the default culture of where you are. So for me, for example, if I'm starting a company in Silicon Valley, lots of defaults there, right? Oh, you should be have a casual dress code. You should have um, great benefits, healthcare, work, you know, things like that. You should have beer at work and foosball tables. Um, maybe today you should have a hybrid or remote friendly workplace. Um, all of these things, but you really need to design your culture. You need to think about what is my strategy, what is my personality. What is my mission and how do I align my culture to all of those things in order to build the best organization I can? So after talking about Shaka Senghor, um, Horowitz goes into Genghis Khan and I love Genghis Khan as a leader. Um, and as just a figure in history, he's really, really fascinating guy. And I strongly recommend you read this book, I think does a decent job at it. I mean, I think he does a good job of talking about Genghis Khan, but there's a fantastic book called Genghis Khan and the making of the modern world. And that book is really amazing. The, the The life story of this man is is nothing short of incredible, and I think it's really worth digging into. But having said all that, I'm not going to dig into it too much here. I think it's too big of a subject for me to give it, do it justice, really. Um, and I think that the the there's some takeaways around you know building a meritocracy and loyalty and inclusion that I think are are valuable, but. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here talking about that. So start by getting this book and reading reading it if you want to get a taste of, of Genghis Khan and how you can apply it to culture. But really just go straight to Genghis Khan and the making of the modern world. That book is is something exceptional. I listen to it actually in audiobook format. I think it works really well in that format because it's so long and it's such a rich story. But I uh, strongly recommend that. So I think the last major point that I really want to spend a lot of time talking about now that you've gotten kind of a summary of the book in broad strokes is you really need to explicitly design your culture. 
and I know I'm, I'm kind of beating a dead horse because I've said this again and again, but that's the entire point of this episode, right? If there's one takeaway, it's that you have to be intentional about your culture. It doesn't come for free. And if you aren't careful about it, your culture will be, it'll be an accident and it'll be most likely wrong. It'll not be the kind of organization you want to be working in and that you want, that you can be proud of, you know? The time you invest in your culture is time that will pay dividends in the long run as employees are influenced to behave in the ways that you want them to in order to further your mission and ultimately improve your bottom line. So be intentional about this. You need to think about your business. You need to think about your strategy. You need to think about what, how you're going to execute and you need to build a culture that fits to that. So to give you an example, this is a classic example of, of a virtue that makes sense for some companies and doesn't. So in the early days, Facebook's virtue, Facebook's motto was move fast and break things, right? And I won't get into Facebook and, you know, that whole idea of are they a good company, bad company, this or that, but you can't argue with the results of the early years of Facebook. They grew to take over the world, essentially, in terms of a social media platform. And at the time, moving quickly was the single most important thing that Zuckerberg wanted, right? He needed his team to just try things out and execute as fast as possible to really juice the network effects from the social media platform and essentially beat everyone else to market with features. So that worked great for Facebook at the time because that was their strategy. Velocity was their strategy. But this would be a terrible, horrible slogan for Airbus or even for Facebook now. If you look at Facebook now, they've gotten rid of move fast and break things. Um, it's called something else now. I don't remember. Um, I don't remember what he renamed it to, but it's no longer move fast and break things because of the impact that Facebook has on the world, right? I mean, Facebook is in a position where a billion people use their products on a daily basis, they have vast influence on society and moving fast and breaking things is really not the the way to build that product or to operate that company. So they've changed that. I think that's another important takeaway. Yes, you have to design your culture and yes, it must be aligned with your strategy. But the implicit thing there is that you have to evolve your culture as your company and your strategy evolves. You know, if you pivot your company from, you know, a consumer facing application that, for example, people can just go on your website and buy to an enterprise application of the same core technology where you're really reliant on enterprise sales and you need people Really, you need people in suits flying out to big customers, whining and dining them, schmoozing them, um, huge customer acquisition costs, but big deals and 
tons of um, lifetime value, you're going to have to change your culture in order to make that switch from a product perspective. And I think that's something um, that you need to keep in mind as you as you go along. So a few other notes on designing your culture. One, it's really important to be yourself. Like people have a great radar for fakeness and bullshit. And if you aren't authentic with your culture, people are going to see that. And that's going to become a part of your culture is a lack of authenticity. So a common theme in all great cultures is that the leader is genuinely closely aligned with the culture. So if you're someone who, for example, is very loud and likes to make decisions quickly and move fast, you probably won't succeed in making a culture of you know, very quiet, careful consideration, slow, methodical decision making because that's not in your personality. And the same is true, you know, of any cultural virtue that you're trying to build. Um, I think the other thing to keep in mind is that, you know, your culture is aspirational. Every culture is aspirational. You're not going to be there every day all the time. But the point is not to be perfect. It's just to be better than yesterday. I think another good thing to think about is that you need to know your shortcomings. You need to know the things that you do that you don't want your organization to do. And you need to counter-program your culture against those by elevating leaders who balance you out. So again, to take myself as an example, I think I can be, at times, this may surprise listeners, but I think at times I can be a little too nice, if you will. Like I really care about the people I work with. I'm a very empathetic person. And so I can stray into the area of being too nice and kind of pulling punches when I'm giving critical feedback, which is the exact opposite of the culture that I want to build. I really love a culture where we can have open, honest feedback and discussion combined with psychological safety. That's really important to me. So it would be very important to me to elevate another leader who is much more direct and is willing to give that negative feedback on the regular basis to keep me honest and ensure that my tendencies aren't driving the culture in a negative direction. Um, Another interesting point that Horowitz made that I thought was like, you could think about your culture and your virtues as a specification for the kinds of employees you want to hire. So if you go and you design, you you come up with your virtues, you come up with your culture, and then you think about it as, as you go through it and you think about it, okay, if this defines the next 50 or 100 people that I hire, or if this defines the kinds of people that I want to hire, what does that say? Is that the organization that I want to build. And if not, you know, maybe it's time to rethink them. So, you know, 
I thought it'd be interesting to kind of think about go through the exercise with you guys right now of trying to come up with some virtues if I were to go off on my own and lead an organization, become a CEO, start a company today, right? What what would be the virtues that I would be thinking about? So one thing is that, of course, I don't have an actual you know, startup necessarily that I'm working on at the moment, but I guess that's not really true, right? I have, I and I have this, the podcast, um, and I have my day job where I'm running an engineering team um, as a technical leader. And, you know, in both of those cases, I have a great deal of influence on the culture. And it's very important to me that we have a good culture in our organization. But let's take the podcast. So let's say I'm trying to define the culture for startup rebels. And Ion, once you hear this, you'll have to tell me what you think about this. And we should actually go through this exercise together as well, because I think it would be valuable for us to do so. So I'm going to start from, you know, things that I would want to see in the people that I work with. So one thing that's very important to me is a predisposition and a bias towards learning and understanding. So it's really important to me that people aren't just doing things randomly, but that you understand why you're doing something and you go do it based on that. You, For example, if you're building a feature at a tech company, you know why your product manager is asking you to build this. You know what the customer impact is of the thing that you're doing. Or in the case of a podcast, right, if, if you're reading a book, you know, say we're in a future world where we have 20 podcasters on Startup Rebels. What do I want the 20th podcaster to do? Well, when, when they start reading a book, I want them to know why they're reading a book and what they're trying to get out of it and then bring that to the recording of the podcast itself. So maybe the virtue is understand why or ask why. Right, because that gives you a pretty clear, actionable thing, right? Um, I don't love it, but we'll go with it for now. So understand why. Another thing that's really important to me is, is sort of like follow through. Like I want people to be detail-oriented. I want people to be diligent. I want them to take the time to finish things off right? Essentially, I don't want people to do a half-assed job of things. And I think that, you know, there's obviously a time and a place for that. But in the general case, it's really important. So so maybe clean up after yourself. Clean up after yourself. Or follow through. I, I would probably need to shop that a little bit. But I think those are, you know, two ways of kind of phrasing what I'm getting at, which is, Take the time to finish things off. Don't leave a mess for someone else. It's important to be diligent. It's important to be rigorous. Clean up after yourself. Another one I talked about previously, really being open. Um, I like Ray Dalio's radical honesty, radical transparency. I also like lately I've been reading, and that's the next podcast that's gonna that I'm gonna do myself is radical candor. Um, be radically candid. Always tell the truth, right? So maybe that's a virtue. 
always tell the truth or be radically can be radically candid and again it's about transparency honesty it's about giving people real feedback so that they can improve their work so they can improve their careers so they can improve their lives ultimately um, it's also about treating customers and colleagues with integrity. Um, fail openly. I think that's another one that's very, very important to me. I think that in a lot of companies and, and just by human nature, the tendency when you fail is to sweep it under the rug and move on. I think that's toxic to a culture. Because one, it creates, it perpetuates the idea that failing is something to be embarrassed about, right? But when you fail, you know, what that means is you took a swing, you took a big swing, there was risk involved in what you were doing. And it didn't pan out. Of course, we would prefer to win than to fail. But failing is an important part of eventually winning. And the most important thing is to learn from your failures. And organizationally, you can't learn from your failures unless you're failing openly and people are are seeing that. So fail in the open. So let's think about that though. Is fail in the open an actionable an actionable statement? I would argue that it is. I mean, say that you are again I'm going to go with the engineering examples because that comes easily for me because that's my day job but say you're an engineer you ship some feature you say it's all good you merge it and then a couple of days later you realize you're taking a shower right at night and all of a sudden you realize there's a fundamental flaw in what you did there's a bug that might sound crazy to those of you who aren't engineers but that's literally happened to me before where like you're just taking a shower and all of a sudden you realize what everything you're doing is all wrong. If you have the virtue of fail openly in your mind, you know, what you'll probably do is go to your next team meeting and be like, guys, we need to talk about this. What are we going to do about this? And hopefully you have a culture of honesty and people will work with you and you'll figure out what to do. But if you don't have that culture right of failing openly maybe you just sweep it under the rug and you're like hey maybe we'll never run into this problem if we do maybe we'll deal with it later um i would rather make sure my personal feelings my personal self-worth esteem is not hurt by my reputation is not hurt by failing than i would to tell people about this issue that's really going to hurt the business and hurt customers. And the last piece that's really important to me is, is ownership. I love Jocko's book, Extreme Ownership. And I think that it's critical. I mean, all of the leaders and individual contributors, all the people whose work I really respect, I think, share this quality. And that's really viscerally owning their work. Um, now, in terms of how do we make it a virtue and not just a value, it's a tough one. I mean, take ownership, seize opportunities, extreme ownership. I don't know. I don't think any of those 
are really super actionable. So I think I'd have to think about this one more in terms of like, what is a good way of describing a virtue of ownership? But okay, let's let's run through those again. So understand why. Clean up after yourself. Always tell the truth. Fail in the open. And take ownership. So I think another interesting thing to do will be to kind of look at these and apply some of the other techniques that you can use to really drive home some of these virtues. So let's take a shocking rule, right? Which, which one of these can we make a good shocking rule to? So if we take clean up after yourself, right? One of the things that I've always, this is a little thing that I always judge companies and cultures on. How does someone behave when you go to the coffee pot and you're getting a cup of coffee and it's empty? It runs out halfway through. Do you leave it or do you fill it? To me, it is critical to work at a company where people fill the coffee pot when it's empty. So to take, because again, that shows follow through. That shows follow through. That shows empathy for your coworkers. That shows cleaning up after yourselves. It shows kind of taking shared responsibility for the environment you're in. It's one of those tiny little things that is a microcosm of how everyone in your organization interacts and handle, deals with the commons in your company. So maybe a shocking rule related to that is it's better to be late to your meeting than to leave the pot of coffee empty. So let's go back to what we were saying. So is that memorable? I mean, I would argue that's pretty memorable because why am I talking about filling pots of coffee if our goal is to make a successful podcast and teach you guys about leadership and decision science? I think it's also weird enough that people will ask why. I mean, you're really telling me I should be late to my meeting because I need to fill the coffee? I need to make a new pot of coffee? Well, no, you shouldn't be late to your meeting. You should have planned to stop by the coffee shop, coffee pot five minutes earlier. But if you are the, in that situation and you're forced to make that trade-off, you have to clean up after yourself. You have to take care of your coworkers, because if you don't, then the next person's going to come and the coffee pot's going to be empty. If you don't do it, nobody will. So you have to clean up after yourself. Um, so going back to the rules about shocking rules, it must be memorable. It must raise the question why its cultural impact must be straightforward and people must encounter the rule almost daily. So I think that's actually a pretty good rule for me and, and what I'm trying to drive home and the culture I'm trying to build. Um, I think we hit on on all of those. Um, so not to pat myself on the back too much, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. Um, so what else can we talk about around these values? So I think another thing that we talked about was being authentic, right? And constant contact and modeling behaviors, right? So I think all of those can be 
kind of shown with with a, with an example, right? So if we take the ownership and we talk about like taking responsibility for things and failing in the open, right? We 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 can drive home this virtue with a story. So the story and this is a real story from my work. So say you have you're you're in charge of a junior engineer and you're responsible for ultimately the work that they get done, right? Because you take ownership, right? So if you're responsible for someone, you are completely responsible for their work output. Everything they do is up to you, right? Um, I think that's taking ownership as a leader. Anyway, so your junior engineer is working on a feature. Um, they're in some complex corner of the code and they they write a bug. They this bug makes it into production and it causes an issue for customers. Um, and of course, in, when it happens, you go and you help them figure it out. You figure out a workaround, a mitigation, a patch, whatever the case may be. You fix the issue, you move on. Now, I think the default action in most companies is to just move on from that and go to the next thing. But for me, it was very important to get the whole team together and go through a detailed retrospective of why this made it to production, what we did wrong, and what we could do better next time. But there's a challenge there because you don't want this retro to look like or feel like we're going to take this junior engineer and we're going to blame them for making a mistake. Because one, bugs happen in software. It's inevitable. And two, ultimately, it's my responsibility because he's a junior engineer and as a senior member of the team, as a leader of the team, his success is my responsibility. So I opened up the retro with the team by talking about how I failed to fully review the code and think through the edge cases and go through a proper design review and that I need to bring a higher standard around code review when we're dealing with these critical sections of the code. Beyond that, you know, I haven't put enough thought into our design review process, which allowed us to miss these edge cases. And that's why we got bugs in production. So, you know, what message did that send when I started with that? Well, first of all, it really softened the team up for the discussion, right? Because if one of the leaders on the team goes into the retro and right up says, hey, this is what I did wrong and this is how I need to be better, it sets the tone for the entire discussion, right? It's about taking ownership and responsibility for what went wrong and figuring out how we're going to fix it. Um, but I think it also goes beyond just that discussion, right? Because most of the people on the team weren't affected by this. This is very common when you are a leader on a team, you will, you see almost everything that's going on, right? Every member of the team is working on different things. They may not be seeing everything that's going on across the team because they're caught up with their own work, but if you're a leader, you need to know what's going on across the team to a certain extent. And 
anyway, it would be very easy to not bring the whole team into this discussion. But I think that was also a very critical piece of like that whole process. And I think that did have an impact on the culture. And I think that's a story that we could tell around ownership and around failing in the open. Um, so I think there's a couple more points that I want to talk about. So related to using stories to define cultures, um, Horwitz talks about this in the book and he gave a really great example. I actually love this. So I want to, I want to just read through this one real quick. And this is, um, essentially when Horwitz was at Netscape. He said it kind of operated like a debate club. So everyone wanted to weigh in on every decision. If you lost the discussion, you would want to revisit it again and again. And they wouldn't get anything done because they weren't willing to just, you know, move on to the next thing. Um, and there I'll pick up uh, from the book. When Jim Barksdale became the company's CEO in 1995, he knew he had to change that culture. But how? Create a cultural value telling people to disagree and commit? While disagree and commit is a great decision-making rule, as I'll discuss later, it's not easy to insert it into a culture accustomed to doing the opposite. Imagine being in a heated debate and hearing someone say, let's disagree and commit. You'd respond, commit to what? My idea or yours? So what did Barksdale do? He created a piece of lore so memorable it outlived the company itself. At a company all hands, he said, we have three rules here at Netscape. The first rule is if you see a snake, don't call committees, don't call your buddies, don't form a team, don't get a meeting together, just kill the snake. The second rule is don't go back and play with dead snakes. Too many people waste too much time on decisions that have already been made. And the third rule of snakes is all opportunities start out looking like snakes. <laughs> so I love this story. I mean, I think it's one, it's hilarious, but two, it really viscerally il illustrates what he's trying to get to, right? And it's memorable, right? You, you will remember that. When you're trying to go and solve a problem and you're thinking, oh man, like, can I take this approach? Maybe I need to get permission. Should I ask someone? You'll think, wait a second, I should just kill the snake. I'm just going to take action and move on and I'm not going to wait for approval or for someone to tell me it's okay or to hear 11 different opinions about it. I'm just going to act on this right now. So I think that's that's really valuable. I think another one that I want to touch on is that it's okay to break your own rules sometimes, and sometimes you need to, especially to change your culture. Um, so a good example of this was um, originally at A16Z, only former founders and CEOs were allowed to be general partners. If you were not a former founder, you were simply not able to be a general partner. It was it was just not going to happen. And Horowitz did this initially, Andreessen and Horowitz, in order to really build a culture of 
you know, people who care for the entrepreneur, who understand the challenge in the founder's journey, the struggle, all of that. And it served them very well for a long period of time. But eventually they had all these young people who were doing great in their organization, who would really internalize the culture and who would make great general partners. But they were beginning to leave because there was no path to the top. They, they essentially got capped out at a certain level and couldn't become general partners because of that rule. So they were losing, to quote from him, we were losing not only our best young talent, but our best cultural evangelists. The rule that we had put in place to enforce the culture and market it hard as our special sauce, I even wrote about it in my book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, was actually screwing up the culture. Many people in the firm knew that the culture had become destructive, but they never told me because I had publicly wrapped myself in it. End quote. So the way he actually realized this problem was that he hired a young analyst named Connie Chan. And after interviewing her, he asked their hiring manager, a guy called Frank Chen, who's a really smart guy, uh, partner at Andreessen and... Um, uh, a great guy to talk to. I've actually gotten some some awesome advice from Frank about you know thinking about career planning and stuff when I was lucky enough to go to a talk by him. But anyway, so basically th- they had this discussion, Frank and Ben, about Connie, and the basically Frank was Ben was saying she can definitely do the job, but the question is, does she want to do that job? And they kind of go back and forth a little bit, but. Basically, what Ben is saying is she's extremely ambitious, and maybe this role is not big enough for where she's trying to go. Um, and essentially, Ben could see immediately that this new leader, Connie Chan, would be vital to his organization, a great contributor, and someone that should grow if all things go correctly to the highest levels of the organization but he felt deeply internally conflicted about this because of his rule so over the years you know she did great everything was going really well you know she championed deals like pinterest and lime the scooter company um but then one day they were going through general partner candidates in an interview panel and, quote, Jeff Jordan, one of our GPs, said, I would take Connie over any of these, but she doesn't meet the criterion. Everyone was silent, but it was a loud silence. Culture is about actions. If the actions aren't working, it's time to get some new ones. We promoted Connie to general partner in 2018 and she is killing it. So, you know, all of that is just to say that if you realize there's a problem with your culture and you need to change it, it's okay for you to break your own rules. And just know that when you break your rules, that's going to be a culture-defining moment. And you need to do it intentionally and you need to do it carefully. Um... Yeah, and one, one last little piece that I'll throw in here is he gives three kind of bullet points for how to know if your culture is broken. Um, so 
if the wrong people are quitting too often, if you're failing at your top priorities, or if an employee does something that truly shocks you, your culture is probably broken and you need to do something to change it. Combine, you need to go design your culture in terms of where you want to be. Then you need to figure out what virtues you're looking for. You need to go be in constant contact with the people doing the day-to-day work to make sure that they are that you are changing the culture. And you need to bring some stories, some lore in order to bring context behind your virtues so people can really understand them and remember them at a visceral level. Okay, so I hope this was a useful discussion for you. I mean, I think this is a really rich subject that you could spend hours and hours thinking about. Um, I hope that for all of you as you know, managers, leaders, founders, as even individual contributors who are trying to grow into a leadership position, that you think about the culture that you would actually like. Think about the virtues. Go through this exercise that I went through today. You know, you may think that the values, the virtues that I just came up with suck, right? Maybe you think that cleaning up after yourself is a waste of time and you need to move quickly. But it's important to think about that and to design your culture. And it's important to revisit that on a regular cadence as well, because it's not a set it and forget it thing. Well, I really enjoyed this book. Um, I strongly recommend it to anyone um, who is, again, a, a leader, an individual contributor, whatever. If you read the book, you'll get into a lot more like detailed context and color around these stories. And I think that'll be really rewarding. All right. So that's What You Do Is Who You Are by Ben Horowitz. It was really great to come on here again after a while. I really enjoy talking to all of you. As always, reach out to us. We really love hearing from you. Contact at rdmr.io if you want to reach both of us or if you want to reach Ion, you can hit him on Twitter at at A-Y-0-N underscore B. We have a couple of great episodes planned in the next couple of weeks. Ion is going to do an episode on Zeckhauser talking about moral philosophy and how that applies to running a company. I think that's going to be really fascinating, a really unique subject to discuss. And I'm going to be talking about a book called Radical Candor. It's a book that I started earlier this week or last week and had an immediate impact on my day-to-day work. I I've really feel like it's changed how I'm communicating with people on a day-to-day basis at my job. So I'm really excited to share that one with you and dig into um, the details of, of all of that. Thanks for your time and see you on the next one.